Hello and welcome to the Global Human Rights Defense Podcast, Stand Up for Human Rights, hosted in collaboration with Global Human Rights TV World News. Every episode of this series will feature a unique guest who will share their experiences and expertise pertaining to the human rights topic of their choice, so no two episodes will ever be the same. All opinions voiced in this podcast are solely that of the guest. GHRD and GHRTV World News do not endorse or promote these messages. I'm your host, Marina Krivonosova, and I'm excited to be here today with Anita Cagnazzo. Anita was born in the south of Italy to an Italian father and to a British mother with Caribbean origins. After finishing high school in Italy in 2013, she moved to the UK and graduated from the University of Birmingham. During her undergraduate years, she studied in Madrid for a year, worked as a student ambassador for the Department of International Studies of the University of Birmingham, and traveled to Beijing, where she participated in a cultural and academic exchange program for two months. She also volunteered as a conference organizer at Science Po, Paris, and after having worked as a trainee for the Italian Honorary Consulate in Liverpool, UK, and for the British Council in Valencia, Spain, she decided to pursue a master's degree. She obtained an MSc in Nationalism, Ethnic Conflict and Development from Leiden University in the Netherlands in 2020. During these years, she had always endeavored to enhance her communication, organizational, teamwork, interpersonal and problem solving skills. She has also done several creative writing courses, IT workshops and language courses to develop new skills. As for volunteering opportunities, she volunteered in a social center in Albania in 2012, in a refugee center in Birmingham, UK in 2014, and she's currently helping an NGO in Cameroon develop a project against human trafficking through a UN volunteer program. It's a pleasure having you here, Anita, and I'm super excited to hear more about that project in Cameroon you've been working on. Thank you, Marina. Thank you very much, and thank you for um, giving me this opportunity. Um, so yeah, basically at the moment I am helping an NGO in Cameroon develop a project um, against uh, human trafficking and more specifically against forced labour and uh, sex trafficking. So um, a few months ago I was browsing the internet, I was looking for volunteering opportunities and I found this um, via the UN volunteering website. So I decided it was a, um, something I really wanted to do because I realized how much impact this could have on actual people's lives. So I really, really learned a lot about human trafficking in Cameroon. And the thing is, I was preparing for the interview with the director of the NGO. So I started researching about the issue. And interestingly enough, I couldn't find a lot of data regarding Cameroon. So I thought this is this this is strange because it um, most of the information out there was about Cameroon being a developing country and uh, ranking high on corruption, but I couldn't find a lot of data regarding human trafficking per se. So when I spoke to the um, director, I learned that the reason why there is not much out there is because the government itself prevents this information from being released, even at a diplomatic level. So that's why we basically don't know much about the, the problem. But it's um, the, uh, the issue is quite severe and there are thousands of people being trafficked, mostly, of course, children and young women aged 13 to 20, 25 years old. 
And it's very interesting, you know, when you study about human trafficking and you get the, 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 the theory, you know, about the topic, but uh, you realize how many dynamics there actually are, even um, referring to the transnational feature of human trafficking. So you have Boko Haram, uh, the terrorist organization, which uh, aside from conducting terrorist activities, also continues to forcibly recruit Cameroonian children as porters, cooks, scouts, and the terrorist organization also uses women and girls as forced suicide bombers, as well as as um, sex slaves, and boys and girls as child soldiers. So, um, there's an international organization which reported uh, non-state armed groups um, which abducted 26 children and forced seven to commit suicide bombings in July 2020. And that's something I didn't have, well, I didn't know about um, whatsoever. And while the pandemic has had an impact on these dynamics, because of course it's reduced um, border closure, at the same time it has not eliminated the problem because there are criminals who continue to exploit economic migrants in search of opportunities in Libya, for instance. So this is another interesting thing because it links to how these people are moving across states and reaching Italy as well. So yesterday I had an online meeting with this organization in Italy, which collects data regarding um, human trafficking and they also offer um, social integration programs and it's it was interesting to learn about the data they've collected because they say that the percentage of Cameroonians in Italy is very small um, but there's there's an explanation to this because basically they analyze people um, they take into account data regarding people who have being victims of human trafficking. So there's a difference between um, smuggling, right, and human trafficking. So they say that there's a very um, little percentage of people who have been human trafficked, but at the same time, there are thousands of people who are smuggled. So, um, that basically means that they they can't take into account that percentage but that basically does doesn't mean that there are not um like there are people who are smuggled and um um they they cannot quantify that that amount because people who move from one country to the other they might be economic migrants not necessarily human traffic but when they reach Italy, then that's when they can potentially become victims of um, human trafficking. But it's very difficult to separate um, the two. So they were saying, uh, for instance, that there's like 33.3% of people who are potentially victims of human trafficking. So people who are in vulnerable conditions and they're very likely to fall into that trap and there's a 31.8 percent of, of um, individuals basically who are victims of uh, human trafficking and they know this because there are reception centers who uh, report cases or there are individuals themselves who um, just report uh, the the abuse so um, 
we often think that these dynamics are only exclusive to one country, but the reality is that these dynamics perpetuate. So um, the transnational feature of the phenomenon is, uh, is interesting. And how can you eradicate this? So this is when the project comes in, because it is an idea of um, survivors themselves who are trying to bring who are trying to bring about positive change. So um, as we all know, international aid, international organizations do make an effort. But as I said before, because of the corruption um, in these countries, then sometimes, or most times, the money which is sent remains at the government level. So it never reaches the people who are actually in need. So that's why I really liked the idea behind this project because it is um, people who are victims of human trafficking themselves trying to um, solve the issue because as we all know, human trafficking is a result of poverty and the lack of education. So their idea is to set up a school where uh, people learn a skill. So in this case, it would be sewing. And they also have classes to um, help them overcome and heal their traumas. And uh, they also offer um, a basic level of education. So that should make people aware. It should empower them and prevent them from falling into these traps. And at the same time, I think it's a brilliant idea uh, of uh, reaching out to other people within the community who might be um, exposed to this and might not necessarily know how to go about it. Because uh, if somebody comes to you and says, okay, I'll give you thousands of dollars for your, um, for your child, then the families just say, yes, fine. And that child ends up being trafficked. And uh, that's that's how things go basically and i find it disturbing <laughs> i really find it disturbing so i thought okay trying um to help this ngo develop a program uh, i thought this is how i can contribute um to this so this is basically what's happening at the moment <laughs> with the uh, ngo wow that that is um <clears throat> a lot of information to take in yes. um <laughs> I, I actually, when you told me about this project, I knew where Cameroon was, but that's about mm -hmm. it. I actually have never read anything about it. And as you mentioned, like a lot of data is publicly unavailable or just generally non-existent. Do you think there's a reason for the government hiding it? Because, I mean, obviously I've never worked for the government. I've never been in charge of this. But when you look at countries like the U.S., they say like we've been trying to gather data. We've been trying to put, make this public, but it's just really hard. So does the government of Cameroon have a reason for just saying, nope, this doesn't happen, this isn't a thing here? Um, I think it all has to do with uh, um, basically controlling uh, a country and uh, African, well, a lot of African states have uh, undergone a period of uh, development and you know the west trying to uh, bring about positive change in african countries and the whole idea of colonialism and this is just the the result of years and years of people trying to impose perhaps a model which does not work and this leads to corruption ineffective administration of the funds and not addressing the root causes of a problem 
because uh, as I said before, human trafficking has its roots in the lack of education and poverty. So you realize how the, the problem is actually structural. So um, the, the way you can go about this, it's, it's really difficult because when I was studying at university, I was very interested in international migration flows. I was very interested in learning how NGOs and international organizations could actually help these countries. And they do to a certain extent. But at the same time, as I said before, it is really, really difficult to go in situ and change things because there are thousands of people there. And it's, uh, I find that it's... Um, it's, it's really difficult to, to address a problem which, um, which affects so many, so many people. And um, I guess, of course, there is an economic interest as well, because human trafficking is, is, is known to um, produce a high income and criminal organizations, organized crime, it's all, it's all part of that. So the fact that these people are trying to raise awareness within that community um, among people, I think that's a way of bringing about positive change. That's how you can actually have an impact on people. That the power of education, I think it's, uh, <laughs> I think that's the key, and that's the reason why I also decided to share this with, with other people because nowadays we're just bombarded with uh, with news. And uh, there are so many things we don't know about. So the fact of reaching out to people, and even more so in Italy, because it's, um, it's a point of arrival, basically, for so many migrants. And throughout the years, of course, uh, there have been many political debates about um, the reception centers, about how Italy needs to deal with the entire phenomenon. And uh, many people are against migrants, so they say, oh, we should uh, help them where they come from in their own country, but it is really difficult to do so. So this is a way of helping people, of empowering people. Um, so yeah, that's another reason why I decided to reach out. Well, I launched basically a funding campaign and the, the whole purpose was uh, to share this with other people so that they knew that this exists and it exists in Italy, but it has its roots there and needs to be um, addressed there basically. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree that education is where we need to start. That's mm -hmm. why I wanted to launch this podcast to know, you know, have guests like you just come on here, talk about it, and kind of raise awareness because at the end of the day, you know, as an outsider for all these countries, that's all you can do at a certain point. And it's yeah. really great that you're involved with this NGO that also helps, you know, raise awareness, educate and help rehabilitate mm -hmm. the victims. Yeah, throughout the year, I think they have reached out to 5,000 uh, children in schools to raise awareness about the issue. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's high. They, um, the organization was basically funded in 2004, and it's been in special consultative status with the UN Economic and Social Council since 2013. So they, are, they do undergo a number of, uh, of checks and they constantly report um, about the progress they make um, as well. But it's, uh, it's, it's interesting how the whole um, 
the whole program is so difficult to manage from an organizational perspective because to develop a project it is so it is so <laughs> challenging and there are um, about 30 volunteers so each one of us has a specific task and uh, slowly we are sharing the progress we make and that's so that's really good because we can see how things are slowly uh, developing and progressing mm -hmm. yeah that's really great to hear and wow that's that's just a lot a lot of people you guys have already reached thousands of people and mm -hmm. I mean, education, as I yeah. said, it is such an important thing. You know, I'm originally from Russia and I know human trafficking mm -hmm. is a big thing there in the sense of it being an origin country, because a lot mm -hmm. of children from orphanages are approached and told, hey, you can move to the US, you can move to the EU and you can have, you know, this amazing life. And they don't know anything about human trafficking. They don't think that they're going to be the victims. So they're just like, yeah, I'll take this nanny job, this cleaner job, and they move abroad and then boom, human trafficking comes into their life. So the fact that you guys are already changing so many young children's lives so early, that's just, that's just amazing. I love to hear about organizations doing yeah. that. Because I was thinking it's also very difficult for these people to, um, to uh, find a way out as well, because even reporting the crime is very, very difficult mm -hmm. because the protection systems, um, it, it, I mean, it's not easy because as a, the organization I spoke to yesterday was saying, they do need to um, have an assessment period to determine whether the person actually needs help or not. And the interesting thing is that some uh, people refuse, like they reach out for help at the beginning, but then they just, uh, they just decide to abandon the program because prior to leaving their own country, they know that once um, they move uh, to Italy or to France, they will be required to work as sex work, as sex workers for a certain amount of time. So that they know that's a reality, and uh, that's that's the only thing they they can do. So yeah, that's. Um, that's very sad because uh, it, it shows that the person knows about the threat, but yet they just accept it because they don't, uh, they can't find a viable al alternative. No, absolutely. That's definitely one of the biggest things because I don't know the way I was raised. I feel like if I have a problem, my first reaction is like, okay, go to the police. They'll help me with my problem. But just hearing these stories of people who are like, yeah, I've gone to the police, I've gone higher up, I've gone to local organizations and still nothing yes. has been done. So this is just my life now. It's just horrifying. Yes. And I was also shocked to learn that between 2015 and 2017, I think, yes, a Cameroonian diplomat uh, posted in the US allegedly engaged in visa fraud, um, fraud related to a Cameroon, a Cameroonian child uh, domestic worker. So because of diplomatic immunity, the United States did not commence prosecution. So again, <laughs> This you think okay there are well there are diplomatic bodies out there which should which should protect um, their citizens but but yet that doesn't happen I mean uh, in some cases that really doesn't happen because um, the the system is just so is just so corrupt at times mm -hmm. and even when you think people should protect because they're in the position to do so then the opposite thing happens. 
Yeah, those abuses of power are just disgustingly common. And I feel like when I used to hear about them in the beginning, I was like, oh, wow, there's something we should do about this. And now I'm like, do we accept it? Is this just how it's going to be? Like, because I hear about, you know, NGOs like yours trying to make all these changes from the ground up with education and whatnot. But do you think that'll ever have as massive an effect as government changes could in the sense of do we, do we need to, I don't know, have like a systematic change to help stop this problem? Or do we just have to accept that, well, you know, we can make little changes, but at least it's something. Yes, I totally agree with this, meaning yeah. that the problem is so widespread. And as I said before, there are so many people out there who do not have the means um, to, to basically have, well, they do not have the means to escape from that. So all you can do is basically raise awareness among people so that they know about this. and. As I said before, if you try and bring about positive change within the, the community itself, I think that's definitely a massive, uh, a massive thing because every effort counts. So if we all do something about this, then I think it's, uh, it's a good way of, um, of changing things. So slowly, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think, um, yeah, well, not educating people, but raising awareness about the topic is fundamental. Of course. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, that's all we can do at this point. Just keep talking about it, keep letting mm -hmm. others know mm -hmm. and getting as many people involved as yes. possible. And I really liked the, the podcast uh, you shared uh, well, <laughs> a you. few days ago, because again, that's personal experiences being shared and you learn about something, you know, you, you, you never thought about mm -hmm. uh, at all. Because, and that's the other thing, when you're at university, you see things from a totally different perspective. You're there learning about the theory and it's all very good but at the same time you realize how reality is uh, so different mm -hmm. and that's something I learned when I volunteered in the refugee center in uh, Birmingham I mean that really was an eye-opener for me because to listen to the experiences that these people were sharing was mind-blowing so I never knew for instance that um people who crossed basically the, the Mediterranean and uh, reached Italy, then in most cases, they emigrate towards the north of Europe. So France, United Kingdom. Um, and there's something which happens in, uh, on, the, um, on the border between uh, the UK and France, which was, which was shocking for me. So uh, some people, they hide in the lorries and when they get to the border checks, uh, the police uses this device which detects the breath. So what these people do, they put plastic bags over their heads so that the device cannot detect basically their presence. And a lot of people die in this process because of course they're there with the plastic bags for so for so uh, for such an amount uh, for such a big amount of time that then that's how they die and it's mm -hmm. uh, it's disturbing you know for people to be so desperate and that's that's that goes to show how bad you know the and you, you think about this we're so lucky to have a passport but if you don't it's uh, i don't know it's uh, it's 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 bad it's very upsetting yeah 
Yeah, I definitely agree that when you learn about it in school, it's very theoretical and you, you don't know how to visualize it even. You're just reading it. It's like reading a science textbook and you're just like, yeah, okay, this is biology, you know, whatever. But when you really learn about the victims and you learn about the stories in these countries and you get to experience it for yourself, it's just a whole different ballpark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Anita, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today. I'm so happy you came Thank on the podcast you. because... I, you know, sharing about this NGO, that's just incredibly eye-opening. And I think our audience can learn a lot from that. Mm -hmm. And if you're listening to this and you want to learn more about Anita, don't hesitate to connect with her with the help of the information provided in the episode's description. And if you are passionate about and interested in human rights, and if you think you have what it takes to be our next guest speaker, please send me an email or reach out to me on LinkedIn. My name is Marina Krivonosova, and I'd like to thank you once more for tuning into this episode of Stand Up for Human Rights. Until next time.